Christian consciousness and how you both met and how you decided to get married. Thank you. And I'll just my husband picked me up from a table at school. <laughs> well, I, I don't remember I, if I sat down beside him or he sat down beside me. I had a sprained ankle, and I was in crutches, and this um, um, very um, compassionate girl was opening the door for me between classes. <laughs> and she sat beside me in our class. Then and he asked me on a date. <laughs> And we actually, um, I had graduated and she had one semester left. And I'm embarrassed to say we decided not to get married, just to live together. Because that was in the 1970s, it was the counterculture era. I thought it would be more meaningful, you know, we're just doing it because we care. And she told her father, and her father's response was, over my dead body, is my daughter leaving this home unmarried. So we said, okay, we'll get married. And I'm even more embarrassed to say that um, we had a courthouse wedding, and we only invited, Three days later. Only invited our friend, two of our friends, and both our parents had to sign the paper because we were too young to get <laughs> and um, uh, so we had the wedding, and uh, I will say in relationship with that, uh, many years later, um, when our eldest daughter got married, I was sitting at the fire sacrifice, and I was looking at my daughter, and it just hit me that, oh my god, my, my daughter just somehow turned into this young, mature woman, and I was just like, I was so surprised. And then I see there's my parents, my sister, and brother-in-law, there's her brothers, her parents. And I just realized I cheated my parents out of this experience. So to atone for that, we're doing everything we can to support marriage. <laughs> <laughs> and um, right after we got married, um, we had this old English car called the Morris Minor. A lot of you are probably too young. They have, they have a collection, there's a, there's a, in Victoria, British Columbia, there's a whole club where all these people have these old Morse money. It's a little signal light that comes off the side. It's like a little arm goes yeah. off the side of the car. And we packed whatever little things we had in that car, and we just left Edmonton, Alberta, and Canada, and, Canada, and we thought, we, we, want, we want something different than just mundane, ordinary life. We didn't know what it was. We didn't know what that would look like. I just know I didn't want fuzzy slippers, the bathrobe, the curlers in the hair, and the neighbor comes over for tea, and that's life, you know? And so that was 1971, and we began reading all kinds of different philosophies. And, and anyway, that culminated in one day in a library in Victoria, Canada. I went to the metaphysical section and randomly grabbed two books off the bottom shelf, took them out, it was Krishna, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, Volume 2, and Prabhupada's Bhagavad Gita, As It Is. And I tried reading Krishna book, it was a Shamataka Jewel story, and I thought, this is too much like a soap opera, so I said, here, you read that. <laughs> <laughs> and I started reading Bhagavad Gita, and, and it was just so profound, it was just answering all the questions that were unanswered. And, um, and Prabhupada sometimes talk how impersonalists, they just do poetic word jugglery. 
And that was my realization when I read Prabhupada's books. Everything else had just been words over me, and when I read Prabhupada's books, it was like a light went on, and I could see the world in a very real way. And we probably moved in a temple within a month of that. <laughs> With 40 other, 35, 40 other devotees in a small house, and we lived actually in a... I lived in Brahmachari National, and she lived in Brahmachari National for year, two years, something. <laughs> it was a very good experience. So that's how we got married and how we came to Krishna consciousness. What was the other question? Or did we got them all? Yeah, you got them all. Alright. <laughs> did you want us to go for one hour or any minutes? So, um, we have until nine o'clock. No, no, okay. So we have, we have quite a lot of time. Okay, so sure. Now. Okay. Yeah. Would you like me to ask more or do you want to go ahead. No? do an introduction, a little bit more introduction? Um, well, I think you know us. Do you want me just to say something? Um, well, I would just say one thing about. Um, let me just ask you: How many people here are married? Can you raise your hand. Okay, quite a few. Let's do it the other way. How many are not married? Okay. How many are never going to get married? Okay. <laughs> um, if map, if there was a map of marriage, it would look something like this. Uh, let me ask, uh, do, are any of you going to have an arranged marriage? Your parents are going to, to choose, or they might introduce you to someone, and you have a choice? Okay, three spirits here. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in the beginning... No, we're going to just I'm saying this first. Okay. So in the beginning, what marriage looks like is everything's perfect, we are in heaven. And what's happening in that stage of marriage... Um, you're falling in love, and your body produces these endorphins, these hormones like oxytocin and dopamine, and the world is totally rosy, everything's completely beautiful, you see all the wonderful things in your spouse, partner, you can't see anything wrong with them, and that's a normal part of marriage, and actually it's very healthy and very important stage. <clears throat> The next stage happens when that mm, hormonal influence kind of diminishes and you begin to discover sides of your spouse that you never really noticed before. And it's <coughs> kind of annoying. <laughs> and, and what happens in that stage generally, both in the man and the woman will start to think that everything will be perfect if you change. No, you have to change. And, um, there are some things about our nature that we can change, some habits we can change. There are some things are just integral to who we are as very unique spirit souls, and those things won't change. And often couples can become enmeshed in trying to change those unchangeable things. And in that stage of marriage, it's a bit of a critical stage because a couple can go one of three ways. <clears throat> um, so at that point, they're both thinking, you know, I think some aliens came and abducted my um, partner or spouse and left me with someone like Ravana or Supernaka. <laughs> uh, and so at that stage, you can go one of three ways. Uh, if you have a low level of commitment and no skills, you might spiral downwards towards separation or divorce, which is very tragic. If you have a high level of commitment, 
and no skills. You might remain together, but maybe not so happily ever after. And I, I think, especially as Vaishnavas, I think Krishna expects more from us than just remaining together unhappily. So it's important in marriage, and especially at that stage, if not before, is to get the skills you need and support to be able to learn how to negotiate and understand and honor your differences. And when you can learn to honor and respect the differences, then you actually learn to work as a team. And then you find the, what the real meaning of love is. It's mutual respect and honor and service. Uh, in that way, you can have healthy, um, meaningful relationships. So maybe at that point, if you... Thank you. And the first question, we have a list of questions and please do send in your questions. Would anyone like to ask a question first? Come here. Hello Krishna. Uh, thank you so much. Um, so you mentioned that it's so important that, uh, to gain the skills so that you can have a relationship based on uh, mutual love and respect and respect the differences. Um, we can see in today's society that a lot of times um, couples will, will stay together because of that commitment, culture, but instead of a relationship based on mutual love and respect, it's based on mutual indifference and they're just about tolerating each other and there's not so much good uh, connection. Um, would you be able to talk about how that develops from that kind of relationship when it starts so promisingly and in, I've just seen and observed perhaps there's a lot of relationships like that this day, perhaps even in ISKCON also. So your question is how to avoid getting to the stage where you have the indifference and the tolerance and it's not going well. Everything needs work. And that's why we do recommend getting some skills because it's a little bit inevitable that you will have differences and also I don't think that people realize that marriage is one of the biggest um, <clears throat> venues for anartanavritti you know we have all of these you know things in our heart which we need to clean and when we get in very close relationships with someone it actually brings out those deeper things that wouldn't come out with someone on the street. And so you've got a lot to work to cleanse. And so you do need to have some skills, how to communicate in better ways so that you can understand each other. Because one of the biggest parts of communication is not speaking, it's understanding. So we do need to learn how to speak and hear in a way that we can share that understanding. And um, be gentle enough with each other to, um, and compassionate to try to help each other through those difficulties. And when you just have that expectation that it's the love that's going to do it, you kind of merge. But to have a good relationship, each person needs to be a distinct, different self than the other person. So that when the other person's a little bit irritated, 
I don't take it personally. When you're all kind of merged, you know, it's like you take it so personally. You can be a little bit detached and go, oh, they're having some difficulty. Let me take a breath, stop and listen. Instead of just reacting. So then we react and then we don't know how to fix it. And we don't fix it, and so that one's piled up there, but it'll get better by itself, and then another little incident happens in another one, and then we bring these little, this big pile of little things, which all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, we haven't worked out this, that, and the next thing, so let's just stop crying, trying, or let's stop communicating. And, um, you know, that could be avoided just by starting a little sooner to repair your little differences. Because happy couples and unhappy couples, they fight the same amount. The happy couples, they repair. They repair well, and they repair earlier. So that's my long answer to your short question. Like <laughs> um, Krishna was saying, that Brihastha Ashram is an opportunity for uprooting an artist. And as Lord Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, describes in the Shashastrika prayers to chant the whole name of the Lord. Constantly we have to develop the qualities of humility, tolerance, and patience, and, and, and respect. And you have immense opportunity for that in the Grahasta Ashram. Because you have children, they will have to become very patient. But by, as Uttama was saying, if you concentrate on making repairs, or keeping your, keeping your relationship on track, then you develop uh, this mood of serving each other in love. And tolerance, when you think of tolerance, you think of maybe gritting your teeth and just enduring it. Uh, but tolerance tempered with love becomes patience. Becomes patience. And it's much easier to be patient than tolerant. So by developing the skills and ability to have that healthy communication and repair those kind of uh, disconnecting events, <clears throat> it helps you become more patient rather than tolerant. Thank you. We have quite a few questions that come in. So um, I'm going to ask them almost as they are. Uh, try and ask it in a sensitive way, even if they haven't written so sensitively. <laughs> <laughs> And you're saying that, uh, don't blame me, because it's not my yeah. work. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, one of the I'm glad you feel understood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, first question is, what are your thoughts on traditional gender roles, and how does that play into a modern ISKCON marriage? Um, we're living in a world which is not so traditional. Traditional role models would be the husband is the breadwinner, and the the wife would be uh, at home with the children. In the world that we live in today, um, it's <coughs> just because of the situation, financial situation, the costs of homes and expenses, generally both the man and the woman will, will need to work. Uh, in some situation, um, maybe the husband brings in enough income that the wife may not need to work. And, and that's very good. That's very good, especially at a time when the children are growing up, because it's very important um, for children to have a lot of association with their mother in those formative years, uh, and so that's very beneficial. Uh, but we also see a lot of women, and especially a lot of devotee women, who are extremely, extremely talented, 
and very well educated, and they also want to do some kind of meaningful service. And, and that's something that's really properly you know, encouraged, like in our kind of society properly. He, he created a whole facility so women could do service for Shula Prabhupada. So our take on that, it's more important to uh, negotiate roles within a marriage. And, you know, each couple needs to negotiate how they're going to, uh, how that's going to play out in their marriage and not just stereotype some ideal from traditional or Vedic society, because sometimes that won't work. Um, there's a nice question that was asked in the Prema Vavarta. I think it was, um, it was asked to Raghunath Das Goswami by Surudamadar Goswami, oh, that what were the duties of a great hasta in Varnashram? And the reply was, their duties are to accept those principles which are conducive to pure devotional service. And to, the word is used, diligently reject those things which are detrimental to developing pure bhakti. So it's important to use that as the as guide. Is this going to be conducive to both of us being peaceful and progressing in Krishna consciousness? So that, that should be the the test for how we apply what is traditional and how to apply that in the modern world. And it's going to be different for different individuals. I guess I was going to say that with the influence of Kali Yuga, we don't all have um, the proclivity for those traditional gender rules also. And so sometimes one person's just better at something and another person's better at something else. And I think you have to go with what works. And um, the traditional rules can be very supportive. And if they work for you, great. But you probably have to do some adjustment just because you're individuals, you know? You want to do a follow-up on that? Yeah. Uh, so I think, especially from a woman's point of view, I think we live in a community or a society like this one. There is a lot of judgment because we do know the ideals of, you know, the mother being home and looking after the kids, etc. And when you're parenting in that environment or you're growing up in that environment where it's 2.4 children, nice house, blah, 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 or, you know, mum at home with the kids and versus homeschooling versus, oh no, I want to go to work and, you know, how do you protect yourself from being judged by others when you're doing what's right for you as a family unit and as a, as a couple? I think you have to um, know your values and live your values. And we may be judged, and uh, people can think what they want, but that doesn't have to affect us. And so uh, there was some interesting research on compassion. I think it kind of applies to this. And it was found that people who are most compassionate, they have, they have boundaries, they have very clear boundaries. Sometimes when we give in to the demands of others that cross our boundaries, it can become disempowering. So you have to know who you are and what you want to do in life and embrace those values. And, um, some people may have other ideas for us and may, may judge us and um, you know, we can respectfully disagree with them and go off their lives. Did anyone else have five dollars for that? 
on this topic, and then we'll move on to another topic. I also see that um, <clears throat> it's still a little bit of a catch-up for men to um, take on some of the non-gender stereotype roles because they maybe haven't grown up with it, they maybe don't have the skills, they haven't seen it. Um, and oftentimes, um, the woman gets a huge burden with um, lots of household um, extra chores. Like they do take on kind of the brunt of managing the household and they work, so you have two time work and you have to do all that. And then you're usually the person who thinks of all the logistics. So they call it like a manager mom, you know, okay, this person has to go to hockey practice this time, this person goes to dentist here, this person has to get picked up here, this, that. Oh, there's no more bread, there's no more this. You know, it's like, it's a lot to think about. And so um, it's actually becoming quite common that it's women are really getting this burnout. And they don't know how to let go and at the same time, they don't know um, how to ask for what they need. And um, maybe we need to also educate men that um, times are changing and maybe we have to just look and see what's really working in our family. Because um, it can be going quite well for the man because the woman's arranging everything. <laughs> and they don't feel it. <laughs> But I think we have to learn how to speak up when it's kind of not working because when we overextend ourselves so much, you know, you can get that nervous breakdown and you start getting grumpier with your kids and it doesn't really work even though you're trying to make it work. So I think we have to, you know, be honest and look closely at all the nuances that come from that also. Our, um, daughter, the ladies paid me. <laughs> uh, our daughter and son, all they have a three-year-old, and then our daughter got pregnant again. She had twins, and the twins are a little older. <clears throat> um, one day, someone asked our three-year-old granddaughter, oh, "What does your father do?" And she said, "He works, and he changes diapers." <laughs> <laughs> twins, there's always something happening. <laughs> Um, so, sorry, sorry. There's a question related to the previous one. Please. Yeah. Uh, you're speaking about developing the skills and the kind of the I just wondered if you had ideas in terms of where to develop those skills. If you had any courses you recommend, or we do. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> For anybody here, we give a discount. <laughs> uh, my husband and I have um, been members of the Grass Division team for quite a while. And the portfolio in the Girls Division team that we took on was to promote the culture of premarital education within ISCOM. And so we were very fortunate that um, Krishnandini uh, was on our team at that time, and um, Archana City and her and ourselves. Um, Krishnandini had made a premarital education program for the whole city of Cleveland. <laughs> so she was quite expert on what was needed. And then also, you know, all of our Christian conscious backgrounds, we were able to uh, come up with a, you know, a very nice course that's not too long because we know, you know, 
Colleen, everyone's really busy. So um, we start with um, a five-session premarital education program. And we are trying to um, train happily married couples all over the world to do that in their communities. So that's the reason that we're here, actually, was to train some mentor couples in order to do that um, here in the UK. And while it's not going to solve all your problems, when the problems come up, you start to realize, okay, I'm normal. We've, we're told this is going to come. It happens to everybody. There's ways around it, and we can work on it. Not like, oh, gee, I think I married the wrong person. Yeah. So um, we find that it's actually very beneficial. And we've been doing it for, well, I don't know, 17 years now. And when we keep track of all the couples that we've mentored, we see that definitely the divorce rate is not 50%. So um, it, it lowers the divorce rate by having that premarital education. And the Christians have been doing it for quite a while, and their statistics are that it actually quite drastically lowers the divorce rate. So um, just having those skills, and also when you work with another couple, you get a little bit of role modeling, and we, we do it um, you know, individually to your circumstances. So we help you negotiate things with each other and learn how to talk to each other and like that. So we actually highly recommend that um, as a way to you know, get skills. Um, and you can always you know, take um, you know, communication courses and things like that. But it's really nice to have something individually with you and your partner that just helps you kind of settle into a, a way of communicating. Thank you. Um, the next question is, is it, better, is it best to have your partner as your main confidant, or is it better to confide in friends sometimes so you don't hurt your partner's feelings? Yes. You need both. Then you would like to follow up on that. Then he needs a mic. The question was, is it better to have your partner as your sole confident, confidant, or um, should you have other friends so that you don't um, put too much on your partner? And I, I think we need both. I think we do have to um, make sure that we do have that um, you know, confidential um, sharing where we do let our partner know our you know, deep, meaningful things. Um, and it's also nice to have someone else that you can go to with other things. That is having someone to confide in is actually um, involves two of Rupa Goswami's loving exchanges, which is to reveal your mind in confidence and hear in confidence. I like to ask the voters, well, how many times have you taken prashad in the last year? <laughs> a little over a thousand. <clears throat> how many times have you revealed your mind to someone? Generally, ladies tend to do that more. And it's also very important for men to have someone they can reveal their mind to, to um, 
it's very um, healthy spiritually and even just for your emotional health, it's very important. And that's one advantage of being married, is you do have a sounding board. Thank you very much. And next topic is about conflict. So how, how do you approach, how do you approach and navigate conflict in marriage? I think it's important to see that the question is how do we navigate conflict in marriage? And it's important to see that it's not me against you, it's us against the conflict. It's us against the challenge. And now there's an interesting body of research on marriage and what was discovered is what couples fight about. They're not really fighting about money or the, the kids or where to live. What they're really fighting about is that they don't feel understood. Because when you don't feel understood, you, you feel unloved. And so a couple might have some challenge that's maybe this big. And when you don't feel understood, that's like throwing a bit of gasoline or petrol on that little smoldering fire and it becomes very big. And generally when couples are able to understand each other's points of view, it becomes much easier to navigate those challenges. And that's our practical experience. And <clears throat> just like we understand, Rupa Goswami is recommending to reveal your mind in confidence and hear in confidence. And he says that's a loving exchange in devotional service. So we might totally disagree on something, but I can understand her, and she can understand me, and we can disagree, and we can love each other. Whereas if you don't understand each other, um, that's when uh, resentment tends to come in. And uh, that becomes very problematic in marriages. So again, it is very important to learn that skill to actually be able to listen to each other. I just, I like, there's a question I'd like to ask also. Have you ever had a conversation with someone, maybe you didn't agree with, <clears throat> they're speaking, and while they're speaking, there's a dialogue going in your head about your point of view and what you're going to say. Have you experienced that? Raise your hand. Yeah, so is that really communication? It's probably communication in what modes of nature. <laughs> Passion leaders. But if we can learn to actually hear attentively, even though I don't agree, it's possible to hear, that becomes communication in the mode of goodness. That becomes uh, a loving exchange in devotional service, even though we disagree. And when you engage in devotional service, the ocean of material existence shrinks to the amount of water in the footprint of a cow. So our problems and challenges become much easier to solve <coughs> or manage when we can actually communicate in a healthy, constructive way. And just a side point also, it's a very interesting um, fact that happily married couples can have up to 69% of the challenges that are perpetual. And the rest are um, solvable. You know, are you going to live in, uh, are you going to live in London or are you going to live in Paris? That's like, you have to make a decision one way or the other. <clears throat> So we might have differences, we have a big difference about perception of time, which comes up every time you go to airport. <laughs> I want to leave early, and she wants to leave last minute, <laughs> by my vision. And so that's a, that's a different in just natures and styles. <clears throat> and, um, but learning to 
Well, the way we resolved that one, it was always this tension when we were going to the airports. She thought I was trying to drag her out the door, and I felt she was dragging her heels. And then one day we had this discussion on what's going on here. And so she came to understand that I just needed to feel confident that at least we had time, in case I had a flat tire or something happened, we could still get to the airport on time, and then we could just sit down and relax. But from her point of view, relaxing meant knowing that the house was going to be organized when we came back from the trip. So the goal for both of us was to relax. <laughs> Completely opposite ends of the spectrum. But just understanding that made it easier to have a dialogue about it. So just that simple communication makes it easier to um, navigate those things. And conflict is really hard to deal with when you don't have enough fondness and admiration between the two of you. So the place to start if you're feeling a lot of conflict is just to focus for a little while on improving what's working well. To add appreciation, to take a little time to do some things together, to just improve um, and get a more positive vision of each other. And then when you have a more positive vision of each other, it's much easier to resolve conflict. So you don't just focus on conflict. Conflict should be just something that you're working through now and then. And the rest of the time, you know, we want to try to be friends and um, respond nicely. So instead of... Um, we need to notice, you know, are we responding harshly, shortly, with negativity? Or are we scanning and seeing what's the other person doing that I can say thank you for? And can I appreciate um, why I'm with them and who they are? And um, can we spend a little quality time together and, you know, do something nice for each other? We actually have to focus on those things. Because you do that naturally when you first get together. But after a while you just go on with your busy life and we just forget to, you know, say thanks and look for something to appreciate in the other person. And that really changes the atmosphere. So it's not rocket science, you know? There was a phenomenon that was observed by some very de detailed research on marriage and they refer to it as the emotional bank account. And so I'm sure everyone here has a bank account. And you know, let's say you have uh, uh, 10,000 pounds in the bank. And if you withdraw 100 pounds, the difference is very minimal. You hardly notice it. If you have 500 pounds in the bank and you withdraw 100, that's quite noticeable. And they actually observed that if a couple has, um, well, what they said, from the research was just for a relationship to remain stable, there would have to be at least five positive interactions to one negative. A healthy relationship might have 20 to one or 50 to one positive to one negative. <clears throat> Very unhealthy relationships might have you know, two negative to five positive or you know, four negative to one positive, and that's very unhealthy. And um, this researcher, he was actually able to observe a couple for five minutes and how they interacted in that five minutes 
whether they would still be married in five years. <laughs> just on how, you know, how they interacted in a very brief time, just by observing how they connected in uh, even small ways. So it's, it's very important to be aware, as Uttama is saying, of the importance of cultivating the positive in the relationship. And it's not that hard, it's just we tend to be, um, especially in long-term relationships, sometimes we take things for granted. Just the small things we do for each other. So it's important to consciously appreciate those things. Because that creates that culture of a large emotional bank account. Um, I think there's about three questions that seem to be follow-ups to this one. Said, so thank you so much. So I'll go through all of them one by one. So the first one is, any advice for men to help them emotionally connect with their wives instead of problem solve? That's a common one. Um, the question is how to help men understand that sometimes women need um, some emotional empathy and how to prevent men from jumping to the problem-solving mode, which tends to make women feel more isolated. And it's a very common phenomena, and it's, it's very natural because women tend to be more emotive than we men. And men are also, we're very logic-oriented, and also we love our spouses, our significant other, and often when they approach us, with what we perceive as a problem that we can solve, and we try to get some solution, they become frustrated. And that, that's very bewildering for men, because <laughs> men want to protect their wives. And so they make, this sincere, we make that sincere effort to offer them some solution to protect them, and then the man will notice that his wife's eyes are kind of narrowing, and bitter look on her face, and then become bewildered. And she might say something like, well, you don't understand. And he says, well, you've just explained to me the problem. I've got the solution. Do it. And she becomes more frustrated. And then the man becomes bewildered. And, and actually, for men, um, research showed that one of the greatest fears for men is a fear of inadequacy. So if we see our significant others becoming somehow upset by our sincere attempts to try to solve their problem. It's, it's very bewildering for men. It tends to make us feel inadequate. So generally, um, men will either withdraw or they might become angry <clears throat> when that happens. And what happens when men withdraw a bit, uh, that tends to trigger a big fear in women, which is a fear of isolation. So when, they, when a woman sees the man she loves the most withdrawing from her, she'll become a little fearful. And because women feel loved when they get that emotional understanding and empathy, uh, they'll start to complain to the husbands, oh, well, you never talk to me. Because they're looking for that connection, because they feel isolated. But what men hear when you say, you never talk to me, um, what we hear is we failed in the past and we're probably gonna fail again at this. So men will withdraw more, which makes the woman pursue more, like you never talk to me. And it creates this dynamic, it actually has a term called pursuit withdrawal. That the woman is pursuing her husband, you have to talk to me. He's thinking every time I try it's a failure, he wants to go to the cave and lock himself up. <coughs> and that, that can destroy marriages. <coughs> that can destroy marriages. Because it just creates this 
big gap between them. So what's important for, um, for men to realize, it really helps if you realize that sometimes there is no problem. <laughs> they just want you to say, well, you know, I hear that you had a really rough day, that, that must have been really difficult. That's it. It's really easy, try it. It's like an emotional release for them. And it's very important for ladies, don't say you never talk to me. Say something like, uh, when you just talk, when you listen to me and just kind of understand what I'm experiencing and just verbalize that, you just tell your significant other, that makes me feel loved and protected. Because we can get that. We can get, okay, that's how I can do my job, okay. You can get that. So you have to explain what you need in a clear way and say how it adds value for your life. Because that man can understand. And that can that can solve a lot of marital problems if you can just get over that hurdle of understanding, you know, men have this fear of being inadequate. And it's also very important for women not to complain to your husband. Don't complain. And so you don't say this, right? We can have to have monopoly on us. Because when you complain, trying to get yourself off the hook. <laughs> <laughs> because again, if you complain to your husband, significant other, about anything, it tends to make us feel inadequate. Whereas if you can just make a request that you know, if you could do this, whatever task, thing, listen to me, and just explain how it would add value to your life, we can understand that. For years, uh, I would always help with the dishes. I'd dry the dishes and put them in the cupboards. And it never occurred to me to close the cupboard door. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why. And she's always, she's always complaining. You left the doors open. Yep, I left the doors open. It just didn't. When she complained, it just. It, and it's one of those things that really annoys me. I have this thing about open doors. You know, you just happen to pick the thing that really annoys me. It happens to be his trait. So I see this annoying voice saying, complaining, and it's like, it's almost impossible to respond to a complaint. It does not work. And then one, one day she just said, you know, she said, um, if, when you put the tissues away, she said, if you could just close the doors, um, I would feel relaxed. <clears throat> yeah. She said, sometimes there's some clutter there, and if the doors are closed, I can't see it. And then if the doors are closed, I can relax. I got that. <laughs> it was so simple. I got that. Most of the time. Don't forget it. But just, I could see how I could add some value to her life. As opposed to hearing you complain, that makes me feel like a failure. So it's important not to complain. It's very important. And especially in terms of that um, empathy to just explain to your husband or future husband what that means to you and how it helps you. And men, men, we also need that. We also need that. And our wives can actually help us to open up a bit. Um, in, in Canada, uh, just prior to COVID, there was a study and they discovered that the suicide rate amongst men in um, 10 years had gone up four times. And amongst women, it was stable. And they were trying to understand well, what was going on there. <clears throat> and they attributed the male suicide rate going up to the increasing phenomena of what they call toxic masculinity, which sometimes manifests as a chauvinistic man. And it's also manifest as men bearing their emotions, not just keeping them bottled up and not expressing them. 
Because for many men, sometimes they have some, you know, some event in their life that's <coughs> tragic or something or disturbing. They're not able to process those emotions. And eventually the emotions become so bottled up, they, they just can't cope and end up committing suicide. So that's tragic. And um, having the ability to uh, express your emotions to someone is extremely important spiritually and for material health. And again, that's why Rupa Goswami recommends that loving exchange. Um, <clears throat> because men maybe don't, you know, talk about their emotions amongst each other maybe as much anymore, talk about other things. I um, personally found that um, if you can just take a little time to ask your the man in your life some kind of open-ended question and just like listen and get curious and kind of bring them out a little bit farther um it's actually a really good feeling for them because most men don't get that opportunity and if you just try it repeatedly um just um just listening you know and being curious they start to change a little bit because it's a, a really um, kind of freeing feeling for them that um, they maybe don't get from other venues. So you can help your husband bring out that emotional side just by being a little patient and being curious because for us ladies, it's actually really important to be... Um, a part of your life and know what's going on for you and how you feel about things. It, it just makes us feel connected with you. So um, we, we do need to hear that from you. It's not like you're burdening us or anything like that if you're just talking about some stress at work or something like that. Um, you know, we also have to be very careful not to just try and fix it. Just, you know, listen and, mm-hmm, that must have been tough. we got to do what we need back. Um, and that helps you to get rid of your stresses. We think, oh, I'm the man. I should just hold it in. I shouldn't share it with my wife. My wife's going to, you know, get burdened by it. We actually don't get burdened by it. We actually feel really grateful that you've shared a part of your life and I kind of know what's going on in your world. It makes us feel connected to you. It doesn't make us feel burdened. And it doesn't make us think less of you, that you have normal problems that everybody has at work. You know, like, we don't think less of you. We just think, oh, wow, I was significant enough that they shared that with me, you know? So um, I think for us ladies, we have to also know the art so that we can help them and um, also know that when you do share, it really means a lot to us. It's, um, it's important also in a spiritual sense because we understand, especially reading Nectar Devotion, it presents a whole spectrum of emotions, all these varieties of spiritual emotions. And how can we enter into that realm of this 
this wide spectrum of variegated spiritual emotions, if in this life, in this world, we can't even understand and access and express our own emotions. So it's it very important for us to do, develop that ability to communicate with someone in our life that we can confide in, you know, what we are experiencing and feeling, and, and develop that um, vocabulary and ability to express those emotions and process them. And um, just in that regard also, uh, and there's a common phenomenon that if you tell, um, let's say you put a message on the community, we're going to have a, a, a seminar on communications and empathic listening. And all the ladies will say, yeah, let's go. And, and all the husband or all the men are thinking, oh, I don't want to go. But <laughs> um, I also like to encourage um, ladies to, when you do want to communicate with your husbands, to put it in the context of, um, can we have a conversation on connecting? Because that may look differently to him than it looks to you. And so if you can have that open dialogue, understanding that the goal is to connect. It's not, it is about communication, but the goal of communication is to have a meaningful connection. And understanding that they also may have a need for connecting that may be different than yours. And you can understand each other in that way can help you both uh, connect in more meaningful and deeper ways. Thank you so much. I'm going to move away from this topic and go to just before marriage. So we've got a couple of questions I'm going to ask them both and you can adjust it. So first one is, um, any advice on how to find a partner and how to make that selection? And then the second one is, what advice do you have for people who haven't yet found their partner, especially as they're getting older and feeling more worried about not being married yet? No idea. <laughs> Our specialty is at matchmaking. <laughs> so the question is, um, you know, how to find a partner. Mm. I have noticed that when we focus, first of all, on making ourselves the best person that we can be, and um, becoming happy in yourself, um, you're more likely to attract somebody else. And we do need to do that work anyway to be ready for relationships. So that's a very good place to start. Um, I also have noticed that many of the good match matches happen just by um, a friend helping a friend, you know, you just get introduced to somebody through friends. So there's nothing like the friend network. <laughs> um, because, you know, you all know each other, you know, to match up. I wish we had better um, matchmaking facilities in ISCON. Um, it's just not um, developed enough. I know that they've, you know, tried here to start some. Um, and that's really, really good. People are also hesitant to put their names in, so sometimes there's just not enough database. How do you say it? We say data, you say data, we say whatever it is. <laughs> um, um, sometimes the, you know, the base just isn't enough. And we do have, you know, a limited number of devotees. And yes, it's very nice when we marry a devotee, and we also need to marry someone 
who's um, or have a personality compatibility with also. So you know you you've kind of got double the things to look for. So that makes it a little bit more challenging. And so um, prayer is also good. <laughs> and the question was, if you're getting a little bit older, maybe um, we could try a little harder to do more networking. Because, um, I know it's almost hard to do, but sometimes we just, you know, have to ask and put ourselves out there. Um, also, I guess we all have to be accepting of just what's, where we are and who we are. And, um, Pray for what we need and accept whatever we have. <laughs> we were talking about some of the movies, I think it was in Toronto once, um, about this challenge. And they said one thing they found helpful amongst the community of young Vaishnavas was that you know, if they felt some attraction to you know, the boy or girl, um, they would ask one of that person's friends, well, I'm a little interested in that girl, can you ask her if she's interested in me? <laughs> and it took the pressure off that having to, you know, go say, do you want to go out for a date with me? <laughs> Not to be in this fear of being rejected. And they said that kind of took a lot of pressure off it. So networking with your friends. To, to see. Sometimes I think we should try that Jewish speed dating, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we can try that. <laughs> <laughs> Look at the example of Kardana Muni. He performed austerities for 10,000 years. And Lord Vishnu appeared to him and said, I'll offer you any benediction. And he said, my dear Lord, um, I think I need a wife of like disposition. You're in Maya, man. <laughs> <laughs> and Krishna, he said, well, actually, you know, Swami Bhagavan is coming here in a day or two and his daughter has heard about you from Narada Muni, and she's got a crush on you, you know? <laughs> so, you can pray to Krishna for help. Because that's a very important decision in life. And, um, it's... Families and marriage are very important to your this society. That, um, We were in Siberia, and there were some old buildings there, and I was noticing the foundations were crumbling. So the foundation blocks were built out of some very substandard material for the bricks. So every Gahasta ashram is like a building block into a complex society, and the Gahasta ashram are like the foundational building blocks, and it's very important that they're very healthy and strong and flourishing. So your marriage is very, it's a very important, significant decision in life, and you want to do that very thoughtfully and carefully. And it's okay to pray to Christians to help you with that. See, who you marry is going to affect almost everything for the rest of your life. So we do want to make the decision wisely. So um, when you're looking, it's really good to look for somebody who has similar values. 
So it's very hard to change your core values. You know, so you want someone with similar values. You want someone with a similar lifestyle. And you want someone with a compatible personality. Those are kind of the three main things that you're looking for. Um, compatibility doesn't mean you look the same on everything. More couples have, couples have more differences than they have things similar. It's not differences. It's whether they work together. You know? And whoever you marry, you're going to marry a particular set of problems. So check out what the problems are to see if you can handle those problems. Because <laughs> it's, just, it's just natural, right? Because some problems you just can't relate to, but other ones, okay, I guess I can deal with that one, you know? Because it's just a given. So that's kind of what you're looking for. Um, just to say, I've only got one more question on here that seems to be related to pre-marriage, whether to get married or not. So if anyone has any more of those, please send them in. So we'll do about maybe five, seven minutes more on that, and then there's lots of practical marriage questions. Okay. So this one is about, do women need to get married to be happy and fulfill their dharma, or can they not be married? That's their decision. Some, some ladies don't get married. Probably a very small percentage of ladies won't get married. But if someone you know has that inclination, um, that's their, their choice. I, I will just say one other thing for individuals looking to get married. <clears throat> um, we have one resource on our website. We can probably have someone send that to your, to your group. And it's a list of about 200 questions about everything you can probably think about in marriage. On. And couples, what they do, they'll just sit down every time they get together and maybe talk about two or three or four questions. And He's, you know when he other. says couples, he means people who are thinking about getting yeah. married to each other. On our website, they're called premarital questions. Mm -hmm. And thousands of times every year by couples. And we've had very positive feedback that the couples are very, very helpful to get to know each other. And a small percentage of couples, when doing that, they discover they, they have some real big value differences mm -hmm. and they decide not to pursue the relationship, which is actually very good. They figure that out before they enter into marriage rather than five years down the road. So it's a very useful question there. So we recommend that before premarital education. And we're just trying to get to know somebody. They kind of like you know, can figure out things because so many things we don't think about asking and then when they come up with shocks later, it's, we don't want to have shocking experiences. Um, and then another question on this topic is what is the best advice that you have or what would you suggest someone to explore and learn more skills-wise pre-marriage. Um, maybe the, I don't know what course, but maybe like a few skills that you recommend people the Skills to. for pre-marital? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, definitely how to listen. You know, listening and communication skills are pretty essential to, for two people to get along. Um, I would also say um, try to perfect um, emotional regulation in yourself because that is each person's personal duty to regulate their own emotions. When you're upset, what do you do? That's something you need to work on because um, it isn't productive to just 
you know, vent it all out. It's quite damaging to relationships. So um, finding for yourself ways in which to regulate your emotions and to notice when your emotions are becoming um, a little bit escalated. Because if you can be a little bit introspective and say, okay, I just blew up at somebody. What was going on in me before that? You know, was I feeling tight in my throat? You know, was I getting stomach cramps? Was I, you know, what was happening? Then you can start to see, oh, okay, these little things are coming. I this, I might blow up at this person. I need, okay, this is happening. I gotta take some deep breaths, you know, um, longer exhales than inhales, very relaxing, you know, big inhale, bigger outhale. Outhale, how's that for a better word? <laughs> New word for <trigger>. exhale. <laughs> um, it's not Canadian. Um, so. um, and then whatever it is that you need. Because when your body is feeling upset, when you're getting those upset feelings, it's your body. So you need to figure out what to do with your own body to calm it. Because when you're very upset, you're not going to listen to your intelligence of your mind. In fact, you're going to be disconnected from your intelligence. And so, um, it's up to us to learn how to manage our emotions so we don't get to that point where we're disconnected from our intelligence and we say and do stupid things. So that's one of the best things you can learn is, you know, what it takes for you yourself to regulate your emotions. That's a big one. That's what Krishna talks about in Bhagavad Gita, controlling the lower self with the higher self. Very important. So now we'll move on to kind of in-marriage questions. There's quite a few, there's a few different topics that are coming up. We'll do that maybe for about 30 minutes or 25 minutes, and then there's quite a few questions on parenting, if that's okay, we can end with that, just so if anyone knows that they know the flow, you can ask questions at the right times. So this, this section is all about in-laws. So there's about three questions. I'll just say them all, and you can just take it as a package, if that's okay. One is um, your thoughts on living with in-laws, whether it's good, bad, in the modern day, um, your thoughts on when there are problems, like what you should do if there are problems with in-laws. And um, this question is, especially as a woman in an Asian family, this can be difficult. Should the husband support his wife or his family? Mm -hmm. So the whole con that whole concept is. The wife. Any more So the questions were, um, now I forgot them all. The last one um, was, um, in Asian families, should the husband support the wife or the family? Um, I, I think in all families, not just Asian families. <laughs> um, the husband definitely needs to support the wife because nobody else is going to do it. And that's your new responsibility. You've taken on the wife to protect her. And I know that's tough because you know you have this allegiance to your parents and you have your you know, your respect and everything, and that should all be there. At the same time, it's your job to stick up for your wife and protect her and help her through those things. And that's um, something that is going to be hard to negotiate, but that's your new duty. And if the, 
family members um, respect the couple's independence and they have a stable marriage. It can be very beneficial for a couple to live with um, their uh, family in the beginning because it helps them learn how to actually behave with each other. And that can be very beneficial. I know our um, oldest daughter, She they lived with us for um, five, six, eight years, yeah. It was actually quite nice. Um, but uh, I know my son-in-law, it was the daughter that stayed with us because um, he had four sisters in his house and they were all younger than him. It was too crowded over there. So <laughs> they moved in with us <laughs> and they were building a house in our community. But because they got twins, um, they didn't have time to build a house because the twins were so much. <laughs> because they were building their own house. But he's a construction person. So anyway, they ended up staying with us for eight years. But he said it was actually really beneficial. And um, so, you know, it can be very good, but everything is so individual. You have to work it out with what works for everybody. Was there another question in there that I missed? Yeah. The only other angle was um, if you have any tips on how to navigate that relationship, because I think, I think there's a general consensus or understanding of the benefits, but I think there's a lack of understanding of how to navigate when it becomes difficult or so we need to make a premarital course for mothers-in-law. <laughs> Did I get it right? Yeah. Premarital, during So when your child gets married and they moved in, here's what you should do as a mother-in-law. Or what you should not do. Well, let's do it positively. Yeah. Um, it's hard, but I think that... Um, Maybe, you know, we need to sit down and talk about it. You know, we're, we're moving in. How are we going to work this out so that we can all get along nicely here? And I know that's not easy because it's not a traditional mindset. But, um, you know, you've been living in the UK for long enough that, you know, everybody's kind of getting used to it. It's a little bit different culture here. The communication is just so important because they're trying their best and, you know, they need a little bit of feedback, you know, maybe this isn't working and this could help and here's how you can help and appreciate them for what they do, what they do. and at the same time, maybe we have to learn how to um, very kindly state, you know, our boundaries. Mom, this just isn't working for us, you know, is there any way we can negotiate this? And I know that's really hard. <clears throat> Um, but what's the consequence if you don't? Then you just kind of like put up with it and then after a while you make some excuse and you move out on your own, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, the more we can work on having congenial relationships, the better because there's nothing wrong with big families. If everybody's working well together, it's like really, really nice, you know? you can run out to the grocery store and not have to take two kids with you and leave them with mom and you know it's, it's quite nice so we have to try our best um and what else can i say you know one question that may add to your thoughts is around um in your experience of advising couples that maybe you haven't lived within them do you see there's like a 
particular arrangement that's generally successful, and then other arrangements that are not, certain psychologies that work well and don't work well, and then therefore the question is, is it sometimes better not to even try, or is it better to always try and then maybe go one way or the other? Just thoughts on that. I think it's really, really individual. If the family is supportive, you know, and there's room, sometimes it is nice for at least a year to stay in that extended family, because like my husband's saying, you don't get overly familiar with each other too quickly, because you have to behave in front of somebody else, you know? So sometimes that can set you off in the right mood. Um, on the other hand, if it's, you know, if it's stifling, if it's not helping your relationship, then I guess you have to notice that too. So um, it, I think it's just so individual. The part problem is you got a lot of individuals <laughs> to be able you know, to work together, so that's what makes it hard. So, um, maybe have those, um, you know, discussions before marriage also. You know, with your in-laws and with your partner. And um, know that when you marry someone, you marry the whole family. And um, your partner may be more like your in-laws than you realize. <laughs> so you might as well get to know them. Thank you. Um, okay, I'll move on from that topic. The next topic is around the principle, and there's maybe five or six questions, but I think this question encapsulated quite nicely. Um, Can we turn off the mics and the um, <laughs> and record? And then I'll tell you what I want to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of past that now. question, a very good question. So the question is, what if one of the couple is a devotee and the other isn't? That's a common, common thing that comes up. And I think the key is, if the partner who is not a devotee is respectful of the other person's lifestyle and choice, then it can work. And I know many examples of um, individuals who married someone who was a quote, non-devotee, unquote, and they have a peaceful marriage, and that person's flourish in Krishna consciousness. And I know two individuals, their spouses are non-devotees, and they, they both told me in different ways how their spouse said they would, you know, you can be a devotee, but I'm not gonna take to this, and I'm, I'm not gonna chant Hare Krishna. And one gentleman told me sometimes he'd come home and work quietly into the house, and he said he could hear his wife off in one of the rooms somewhere chanting Hare Krishna. <laughs> 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 um, however, if there is uh, animosity of a, um, towards Krishna consciousness, um, that's very unlikely to be a happy marriage. Happy marriage. 
Your question is twofold, though. It's like, should I? One is before marriage, and one is after marriage. So when it's before marriage, you have more leverage. You can state your, you know, these are my boundaries, and this is what I need. And if you're okay with that, you know, and and you know, tell me your limits, and you kind of agree on it. Um, I see that those marriages can work, you know, if you just somehow have many other things in common. Um, it can be possible when you go into it with that, you know, pre-agreement or, you know, understanding. When you come to Krishna consciousness after you're married and your partner doesn't want to come, um, then we have to be um, very patient and very gentle because we've all of a sudden made a huge lifestyle switch and just to think that that other person can automatically jump there with us um, is very unlikely um, so we have to be really really patient and also um, it becomes very, very tricky in many circumstances because you know you have your kids and you maybe want to keep your family intact. And then you, you can have conflicts like, you know, um, one person wants the kids to eat meat and you really don't and you start having big conflicts over things. So it does require, you know, having good conversations to at least um, try and get, um, you know, maybe at least the vegetarianism <laughs> happening. Um, sometimes, though, we've seen in countries like China and um, Russia, this happens a lot. And the government regulations are actually quite strict, like when they send their kids to school, Kids have to eat the school lunches. It's actually, we don't realize how, how many options we have here. There's lots of things to negotiate. So um, I think we have to be very patient and we have to really weigh out the pros and cons because sometimes the amount of support that we get from the relationship outweighs the benefits of just giving it up. Um, and then, you know, in some situations, it's just, you know, really, really unbearable. So I think it's really, really individual, but I don't think we have to have the stigma that if my husband's not a devotee, I have to give up him and I have to, or my wife, I have to give up Krishna consciousness. Because that is just not a fact. And Srila Prabhupada, he, he really encouraged um, people to, you know, do the best they can in their relationships. So I don't think we should see it as a stigma. You know, just try to make it work to your best ability. One of the leaders in China, his name is Radha Charan, we did some work with him during COVID online, <coughs> the Chinese devotees. <coughs> and he recently got back to China after being away for two years. And he said he changed his, his strategy in dealing with families. And there, 95% of the devotees who join are married women, and they're, and they're Husbands don't join or take part. And he said the strategy in the past was, okay, how to get this person initiated within six months or one year? And that was the focus, and that was the whole focus, and 
forget about the family, whatever we are, we are. And he said he just totally changed his whole focus. And what he does now, he was telling us, um, the first thing he does when the lady wants to become a devotee, he goes, he wants to meet the husband. He wants to meet the kids. He wants to meet uh, their parents or the in-laws, how they're doing, how's the family doing, how's the family dynamics. And he works on improving the relationship between the husband and the wife. So that he sees, oh, she's taken to this Hare Krishna, but she's becoming a better wife. And he says, what's happening now? It's, it's, he said it takes longer, but it's so much more productive. And he's getting reports from these ladies that, <clears throat> well, the, the husband's not a wife, but not the husband's not a devotee, but he's encouraging her, you know, <laughs> he's encouraging her, well, you know, she have to set up the altar properly, you know, <laughs> even though he doesn't worship. And the kid would say, Mom, you're spacing out when you're chanting your japa. <laughs> so he's, he's, he, puts, he puts the focus on the family, even though the family may not be devotees. And it's helping to make the family peaceful. And the woman can execute her Krishna consciousness more peacefully. So he said it takes longer, but the result is so much better. Thank you, Mom. Um, so now the hot potato. Yeah, so I think to this, loads of questions on this topic. But um, to one that talks about it quite nicely, and then maybe if you can just speak about the topic in general. So um, in the Grahastha Vision book, on the fourth regulator principle, it states that most couples will not be able to follow this in a healthy way. So the questions are, what is a healthy way to follow it? Could you define it, what it looks like in a marriage? And um, how you would recommend we go about um, uh, following it in the best way possible? So I'm going to rephrase your question. Because I don't agree with it. Just a clarifying. Yes, okay. Because <laughs> the question was, you said in our book that most couples are not able to follow the fourth regulative principle in a healthy way. So what is a healthy way? Um, 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 I think, first of all, we should stop being so judgmental about ourselves. And... How do you, you need to find out what is healthy for you. And not just, you know, assume that the one way is the only way and anything else, I'm just fallen. We have to see, we understand what is the highest principle and we want to figure out what's the best way we can get there. So Srila Prabhupada, he's given a um, I don't know what the word is. Um, a parameters for what is illicit sex. Illicit sex, his basic parameter was sex outside of marriage. So anything outside of marriage, probably considered illicit sex. Then he also gave us the pinnacle of. Um, Sexual intercourse was to have um, intentional sexual intercourse at the best time for procreation after having performed Garbhanam Samskara. That's something phenomenal that we've never heard about. You know, in any other religion or anything, that you can have such a pinnacle of sex life that by doing it in this way, you can intentionally help the consciousness of the child that you're bringing into this world to have a proclivity for Krishna consciousness. 
I can't remember about that. You know, that's, I mean, something phenomenal. So, you know, it, it gives us a way in which to bring Krishna consciousness children um, into this world. Then we also, Srila Prabhupada also explained that um, if we have sex desire, we should get married. So, um, if you have sex desire and you get married, the sex desire does not go away when you throw those bananas into the fire. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you still have to figure out how you're going to deal with it. And that you have to figure out as a couple. Because each person has a different body, they have different sun scars, they have different, um, you know, um, everything different. And so you're going to have to negotiate between the two of you how do we want to come to the highest standard and how are we going to get there? And um, it's really going to be different for different people because we're all at different levels of spiritual advancement. We have different bodies, we have different needs. And the point is to not be resentful of the principle, but to see that it's for our benefit and how are we going to get there? I was born told to write that chapter of the book. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm actually the last person probably to write the chapter and the last person to speak about it because I'm really introverted. That's why I do. <laughs> <clears throat> I, uh, I mean, I saw so much damage caused by devotees artificially trying to follow that, that high standard. And um, to the point where they would minimize any kind of connect, connecting activities because they were afraid it would result in some sexual attraction. And at one time in our movement, in many places, and we've heard this on our travels, that the divorce rate in our society had been as high as 80% in some areas. And uh, one time, someone asked me, well, who are your role models for marriage? And at the time, I thought I was thinking of all the devotees I knew that were married, and I was, well, they divorced, they divorced, they divorced, they divorced. <laughs> really, I was struggling. And I thought, okay, my parents, my aunts and uncles, they were really stable families. And I made a list of every devotee personally that I knew, and that time the divorce rate amongst those of, of our list of people we knew. Yeah, it was 72%. That's, I mean, that's higher than the outside world. And that, that was what brought a shock to me. And, um, you know, after researching Prophet's books and talking with some very mature devotees, and also talking with Radhanath Maharaj, um, you can see that Prophet did actually, he still actually had this one standard. Um, Ranath Roshi had a discussion with the group and we were just forming. And he told us he does not know of one instance where Prabhupada made an issue out of anyone's sex life. Prabhupada said he, he said Prabhupada never inquired about that for anyone. <clears throat> he said from his point of view and his knowledge, he considers there's illicit sex with a capital I, which is outside of marriage and illicit sex with a, a small i, which is in marriage, but not, not just for procreation. And he said he does not consider that small i illicit sex to be breaking the regular principles. And we've heard that from many other gurus also. They might say things like, um, the marriage vow is more important than the no illicit sex vow. And so there is a, actually a plethora of views on that. There's still some individuals have very strict view on that. Uh, but I see the majority of initiating gurus have a more liberal view. 
And if you study Srila Prabhupada's books, again, you will see some places where Srila Prabhupada refers to um, just sex only within marriage. And I was quite surprised when I came across one a conversation with Hayagriva and Srila Prabhupada. It's in this book, Dialectic Spiritualism, in a conversation about August Comte. And the, the conversation kind of branches into marriage. And in that conversation, the Prabhupada's talking about how householders, they live together peacefully, and the husband's working and he's coming home, and the wife makes some nice foodstuffs. And, um, and then Prabhupada, I had to read it three times because I. Prophet actually say that, and the prophet he, he said in this conversation, he said, and then they have nice sex, and then they can execute their real business spiritual life. So then they can be peaceful and execute their real business spiritual life. So you see, it almost appears like contradictions, and in one sense it is contradictory. And it's interesting. I also found an interesting question that was asked to Srila Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur, why, why these contradictions are there in the works of the Acharyas and in the Shastras? And Bhakti Siddhanta's reply was, from the material point of view, these things seem contradictory, but on the liberated platform, there is no contradiction. And he said something very interesting. He said, those contradictions are there to protect the sanctity of Shastra from the prying eyes of the non-devotees. Very deep thing. But, and also we consider the second verse of Srimad Bhagavatam that describes our philosophy, the Bhagavad philosophies, reality distinguished from illusion for the welfare of all. So, these statements, it's, it's not like a matter of, you know, how many, how many quotes do you have for this side and how many quotes for that side? You put it on a scale. That's not the process. The process is to see, okay, our Shastras and our Charyas, they say this, and they say this. What's going to help this individual advance and progress in Krishna consciousness? <clears throat> and um, the way we present this topic and our dealing with devotees is we don't tell anyone what not to do and what to do. That's, that's their individual choices. And we present the highest standard that Srila Prabhupada uh, has taught, <clears throat> and also how there is this spectrum of views on the subject. And one thing we stress is that um, it's not just a matter of SEX, it's a matter of connection. <clears throat> and we put the focus on connection. Uh, sometimes um, some leaders might tell their disciples, well, just, might tell them, just give your husband sex and then that'll solve the problem. In the, in the material world, on the outside, that's the norm, and, and the divorce rate is still neighboring, in the neighborhood of 50%. So just sex, SDF, sex is not going to save a marriage. <clears throat> What's going to make a healthy marriage is if a couple has a healthy sense of a heart-to-heart -heart connection. And so if marriage was an equation, and we have different factors in the equation, if you calculate all the factors correctly, you get the correct sum. So in marriage, you have the factor of um, shared activity. You're going to have a factor of emotional connection. You're going to have a factor of intellectual connection. Uh, you're going to have a factor of um, um, physical, non-sexual uh, affection. And you're going to have a factor, uh, unless you're 
both paramahamsas of the sexual attraction. That's going to be there. Uh, and so it's important that all those factors have to be carefully considered to get the sum of a, of a heart-to-heart connection. Because if there's just sexual connection and no intellectual, no emotional connection, you're not really going to have a happy marriage. You're not going to have a happy marriage. Uh, so again, we, we really stress couples that you have to put the focus on connection. And that issue of sex, that's just something in that uh, formula that you have to um, discuss with open and honest communication, how you're going to navigate that, and how you're going to have a a long-term healthy relationship. So we see that in every religion, marriage is there to regulate sexual activity to something that's not damaging for society and which is healthy for individuals. So um, for us, it's not a matter of um, repression, but of purification. So how are we going to purify our sex desire is the real problem. And so we see that if we're somehow or other um, not able to purify ourselves that desire, outside of marriage, then through the Prabhupada Red Recommend, we get married. So then we still have to figure out how we're going to purify it. So purification usually happens through regulation and through um, austerity and through um, responsibility. So we see that when we get married, we have to take responsibility. You have to take responsibility for that person you're having sex with. And you have to take responsibility for the children that come out of it. And so by that responsibility, you start to purify your desires. And then also we know that um, in order to um, purify our desires, sometimes we have to keep them a little bit more regulated. So we figure out you know, what regulation is going to work for us so that we can eventually come to the highest standards. And like I said, that's going to be different um, for everybody. And then we start to see that when we take responsibility for someone, we have loving relationships, then it's not just about me and my sex desire. It's about having a relationship with somebody. And then it becomes purified beyond. It's just about me. Then it's more about us, and then it's about just affection. And then it's not so much about sex. And they just start to get purified. And then you can come to the you know platforms where it's not such an issue anymore. So um, we actually really have to figure out how to purify the desire because, you know, repression doesn't necessarily work. And, again, just and so also, you know, our spiritual, um, our spiritual sadhana and things like that, that's also a big part of the purification. And some couples may strive for that last platform. And that's their decision and their choice together. <clears throat> but again, it's very important, and what we reinforce to couples is that you, know, you may try for the highest, highest standard, but it's very important that in the quest for that highest standard, uh, it's very important that you do not minimize affection. Because sometimes couples will do that. They'll minimize affection in terms of uh, trying to come to the highest platform. And in one purport, in the second canto, Srila Prabhupada referred to affection as a symptom of life. He didn't just say it was something like a need or something important. He said it was a symptom of life. So I have a 
a pulse uh, in my body, it's symptom I'm alive. If I started turning blue and you came and felt my wrist and there was no pulse, you would know I'm unfinished. <laughs> and so a marriage that becomes devoid of affection, it's it's uh, having serious, serious problems. I, can be catastrophic if it's not corrected. So very important to cultivate affection in relationships, in marriage, and to understand that there's many um, doors to affection, avenues to affection. I just like the word conjugal. Nowadays, conjugal, people just tend to think about um, sex. Conjugal means sex. But actually, the dictionary definition of conjugal is to do with marriage. So I read that, oh, wow, what's, what are the things that are to do with marriage? Okay, uh, okay having kids, um, you know, unless you're a mystic yogi, you're probably going to be through sex. Um, marriage has to do with having a job, getting education, uh, building a house, doing the dishes, changing diapers, doing so many things. So you might say, well, um, that's conjugal? Yes, it is, because you're doing that as a loving service to your spouse, to your family, to your community, to Srila Prabhupada and Krishna. It's a very important loving service. And it's important to, to see all those things we're doing in the ashram. It, it is a part of that loving service to Krishna. And, and as we were talking about that emotional bank account, that if you can see that, okay, look at all the value that my spouse is adding to my life. My husband's going to work, and he's helping with the kids, he's mowing the grass, he's like paying all the bills. And the husband can appreciate how the wife is doing so many things. It's, it's important to see and appreciate those things because those, those are actually conjugal exchanges. Those are conjugal exchanges. And Prabhupada, he referred to once, he said, there's the burden of the beast and the burden of love. Can be the same activity. One person is feeling it as an incredible burden, and the other is doing it out of love. <clears throat> so in our in our ashram, it's important to see that we're. This is a very extremely important service for Shri Prabhupada and his mission to have healthy families. Extremely important service, and if we do it in that way, it, it can become a burden of love. And like my husband said, that's why we have to find so many avenues for that affection. Otherwise, you just gravitate towards the one. But if you have many avenues of having affection, then um, it doesn't put all the pressure, you know, on just sex for connection. So we, we want to develop many, many avenues of connection. And then you just gradually, you know, purify. And um, it really is going to be different for many people, you know. Thank you so much for that. Um, I just want to check if there are any questions you want to ask us on that topic. Others we move on to another topic. I think this covered really nicely, but just to check if anyone's checking uh, <laughs> yes. yeah. yeah. um, So I have um, a couple of friends who are um, uh, trying to conceive and having like, a really tough time, and uh, they um, and I. Th I feel part of the reason is they're really like following this high standard, both working full time, uh, only, you know, when the priest says at a certain time according to astrology, following, you know, 50 rounds, all that kind of thing, and putting a tremendous amount of pressure um, on themselves to follow like this really high standard. 
Um, if they were asking you for advice, or uh, what would you like say to such a couple? Mm. Well, I could see that that's really important for them. And while you're trying to execute your values, we also want to do it in a way that isn't stressful. Mm. Because when you feel a lot of stress, it's very hard to conceive. Mm. So they need to probably closely look at it and see how can they get the stress out of this. That's what I would say. You know, because... Um, There's two more kind of well, there's quite a few, but I'm gonna take two more questions on marriage, and then there's quite a few on parenting. If that's okay, but I know okay, we, we said till nine o'clock, but if you're that's okay, okay. Yeah, that's okay. Um, so the next theme is around um, there's some there seems to be like some sort of a, a sense of sometimes one of the partners taking the role of a mother or a father and how to avoid that, and then there's one theme around um, boys that have been spoiled by their mothers. They have that expectation of their wife. So that they're, they're <laughs> <laughs> um, My son-in-law, when he was younger, I would go to his house and he was, um, his mom was like making something fancy. I said, oh, you're making something for your husband? No, this is for my son. Don't eat this and this and that. <laughs> and I said, oh, I pity the girl that marries your son. <laughs> of course, it's my daughter. <laughs> and then, Um, we used to, um, um, he used to, when they were courting, he would come every night for dinner, and um, sometimes his sisters would come over too, and they'd come over and say, Jai, you're eating that? You never eat that at home. You spoiled brat. You make mom make you something different. Here you eat it all. <laughs> so, you know, they, sometimes they come out a little bit different. Right? <laughs> um, you know, sometimes there might be that tendency to want to be a mother or father or kind of lord over a spouse, one way or the other, whether it's a woman or a man. <clears throat> um, this interesting article was in a Harmonist magazine in the 1930s that's attributed to Shulapakistan, the star and Thakur, and it describes the Vaishnava marriage. It's quite interesting. It starts out by saying that both the man and the woman should only accept someone as a spouse who they see as a better servant of the Lord than themselves. So how are you going to do that? Both women are sometimes more advanced. So it means you both have to have that mutual humility and respect. And it says neither has any right or sense of uh, proprietorship over the service or the property of the other. Neither can impose their service upon the other, or demand service on the other. It's a very, very interesting article. And it concludes by saying how this system of the Vaishnav marriage has its origin in the worship of the household deity. So that you have a deity in your house, a Panchatattva, or Krishna, Radha, Gornitai, they're the boss of the house. And the man and the woman in marriage their duty is to cooperate together to please the boss of the house Krishna. That's very good. 
So the question was about acting like a mom or a dad, like a mess, like, like a parent instead of a spouse? Yeah, some, some taking the role of the mother or the father instead of a spouse. And then for some boys, how to not um, impose that spoiled nature you have when you've been receiving them from one of your spouse. Well, in terms of our Vaishnava theology, um, we don't want to be spoiled, for sure. <laughs> because our goal is to be a servant. And as that letter from Shilapasti Sutton points out, that we're actually meant to serve each other. So that's very important. And um, the more we think about ourselves and not think of our spouse, the less happy we're going to be. That our happiness is actually going to come from actually serving each other. If both husband and wife have that attitude, then there will be a very healthy relationship. And um, you want to address some other father dynamic? Sometimes those kind of patterns <coughs> can evolve if someone has had a very um, controlling situation in a family, they may tend to repeat that in marriage. Um, I think it's important for a couple to see if that kind of dynamic is entering into the marriage and it's unhealthy. Um, you know, they should try to examine, well, where did that, where did that mentality come from that's creating this problem in the marriage and, you know, maybe what that individual can do to try and get themselves a bit more balanced. Um, sometimes individuals might have, uh, they, they grew up in a very controlled, controlling atmosphere. Their parents are very controlling and demanding, and their adult minds can also be becoming very controlling and demanding and repeat those same patterns. And um, if at least they can realize this is not healthy or conducive to a healthy relationship, and, and sometimes it can help to get some counseling to process the past. So that those, um, literally those kind of things from the past become imprinted in your neurological pathways and, and cause you to act in certain ways. And being able to realize that and process it and understand what a healthy relationship is going to look like and how to uh, practically do that in your life can help one literally reprogram their minds to behave more. So it's, it's realizing it's a problem and doing the needful to um, move in the right direction that's healthy. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a, there's a whole set of questions about um, are children required in a marriage? Does a grasta have to have children? Are children necessary for a successful marriage? And then if you figure that out, how do you know when you're ready for kids? It's an interesting question because um, it's one of those things that's hard to realize until you do it. Until you've had kids, you don't kind of you don't know what it's going to be like. So it's hard to make the decision. It's kind of you don't know what you don't know. So it can be a hard decision to make. Um, most people um, flourish quite well when they have children, but some people don't. They just they're. Um, nervous system just kind of can't handle it, you know? So I guess you have to know yourself. 
Um, and there's no musts and absolutes. You know, we're all individuals. So I think you have to, you know, very carefully look at, you know, um, yourself. Um, and also, that's one of those things that you need to negotiate before marriage. Because if one person really does not want kids and the other person really wants it, what are you going to do? Have half a kid? <laughs> you kind of got to figure that out before. So that's something you should talk about before marriage, for sure. Um, and um, I don't think I really had a great push for kids. But somehow, really, he really liked kids. I'm okay, well, I guess we will have kids now. And I, I'm so happy we had kids. I had we had three kids, and I wouldn't miss it for anything. But I just didn't, you know... Wasn't one of those ladies that ooh, ooh, ooh with the babies, you know. <laughs> but when you have your own, you really like them. <laughs> and um, you learn so much from parenting, you know. It's interesting because uh, we had one of the teachers in our Gurukul at school, and she didn't have um, kids. And I think it was one of my grandkids who was probably about I don't know, twelve, thirteen, and they said. Yeah, that teacher's a little bit like that, but we realize she hasn't had kids of her own, so you know we just have to kind of like be patient with her. <laughs> so the kids can figure out she just didn't have kids and grow, have some of the skills that other people have. So you definitely get a lot of skills through parenting, you know. And your kids teach you so much, you know. I was complaining, you know, people play the cartels so loud. My daughter said, "Well, you know, you play cartels loud." Mom, I said, "Oh, do I?" How about just to say that children in this movement are our future hope? You are you are also once children and you become our future hope. And you may have children like you would likely have children that will be our future hope. And um, sometimes at certain times you may think, oh, these kids are our future hope. <laughs> and we joined in a small house with about 35, 40 devotees, and there was a couple small kids running living in the temple too. We said we're never having kids. <laughs> And I used to think, okay, I, I have no idea who these kids are. I have no idea. So I just, I got to tolerate them. <laughs> and I, I had this one incident that really struck home to me um, the importance that these kids have. We have no idea how they're influencing the world. In, in Vancouver, we used to do a Sunday Harangong in the biggest park in the city, big tourist destination. The boys would sit and chant. Uh, some. They would just sort of shot them. Little kids would just, they'd just dance in the kirtan. And hundreds of people would stand around and watch. And so I, I saw this lady there. I went up to her to try to sell her Bhagavad Gita. She just went. She looked like an electric fence. I said, okay, I'm not going to go there. <clears throat> and then uh, 10 minutes later, she's calling me over like this. And so I went over and, and she said, um, she uh, worked at, uh, this was during the communist era, like the late 1970s. And she said she worked at a, the, the embassy in Vancouver. Russian embassy. Russian embassy. And she said, I always told you people were a dangerous cult. <laughs> and she said, but she said, I've been observing these children, and I can see how spontaneous they're taking to this chanting. She said, I want to buy that book from you, and I'm going to take it back to Russia and tell all my friends about this. <laughs> <laughs> so where did that come from? I didn't sell the book. The kids sold the book because they were happy. <laughs> So you have no idea how just little children, they're also influencing the world.
So the question was when, and um, I've noticed um, watching, you know, lots of people grow up in Krishna consciousness that sometimes, you know, I just, I can't think of what I can't think of what I can't think of, all of a sudden you think, all of a sudden, yep, I want to have kids now. It just kind of comes, you know, at a certain point also. So just because it doesn't feel like the time right now doesn't mean it's never going to come. this to the next step, um, we've agreed to have children. Uh, how do we agree on the gender of the child? And if you don't agree, does that affect the child? What do you mean, how do you agree on the gender of the child? <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing that's just an The question is more that, say, the couple can't agree on the gender of the child, does that consciousness affect the well, child? I think you mean, think you mean when, you, when you do it, when you have... <coughs> God, God, God. And you're intentionally inviting a soul. Are you inviting a male or a female soul? Well, you can. You're going to get what you get, also. You're going to try for the best. You're going to get what you get, so you're going to be ready for that. <laughs> um, well, you know, we had two girls, and my husband was going, well, why don't we try for one more? Maybe we'll get a boy. We did. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes it happens. You are going to get what you get. Yeah. You love them all anyway, you know. Because at that time, it's you're on the mental platform. You know, so. <laughs> Whatever it is later on, you love them. So I don't know what the big deal is in the first place. <laughs> I don't know of any statistics on the success rate of um, <laughs> ceremonies for gender. I don't know, so probably can't comment on that. I had, we also heard one in, interesting thing. There was one couple, they were having a hard time getting a child. They went on to Govardhan for a year, and they asked, who did they ask? They asked a guru? To he blessings. asked his guru for right. blessings. She asked her guru for blessings, and... I guess they prayed to Govardhan. And they prayed to Govardhan. They got triplets. <laughs> so be careful what you pray for. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, on to parenthood. Um, how can mothers not feel inadequate just being a mother and focusing on their kids when we live in a preaching movement and external results are sometimes valuable? You can tell them my experience with the, the children that helped smuggle a Bhagavad Gita into the Soviet Union, which was probably photographed multiple times and made into these books of pictures that devoted just to make in Russia. That's important. Being a mother is one of the best <coughs> services you can do. And one time, um, I think it was, was it Arundhati? She wrote to Srila Prabhupada and she said, you know, I think I should be doing pujari work and you know maybe I can get a babysitter for my kid and Prabhupada said that you know raising a child is you know one of the highest services you can do don't be bewildered and um, I think she's because she worded it as direct and indirect service and Sri the Prabhupada says there's no such thing as indirect service you're all connected to the powerhouse so it is actually direct service so we have this Weird thing that you know, marriage is material, kids are material, raising things are material, going for my job is material, and chat and job is spiritual. But it's not quite like that. That's the purpose of Rasta Ashram is to spiritualize everything. 
and then it doesn't bind you and keep you sunk in this material world. So we have to realize that our relationships, we have to spiritualize them, and they are our devotional service. It's not what's more important, parenting or devotional service. My parenting is my devotional service. So you're raising a child um, to become a devotee of the Lord. That is huge service. And even you're raising a child and they don't become a devotee of the Lord. You know how much better this world is going to be? I mean, every cuckoo person out there that's, you know, doing all these mass shootings and this and that, you look back and see if they had a good, you know, how they were mothered. I bet you what, you know, they had a tough upbringing. So you're just making a better world just by being a good mother. There's nothing to feel guilty about it. What to speak of, if you can, you know, share Krishna consciousness with another soul, that that's the perfection of life. It's not any different than going out on, you know, book distribution and making a devotee. You make them one way, make them another way. <laughs> it's actually a very, um, sometimes can be a very subtle but harmful paradigm that houses will think, well, my ashram is something different than my service, or something less than devotional service. It's, it's very detrimental and very unhealthy, and um, it's something where you really stress to see that you know, what you're doing in your grandstation is extremely important service to Krishna Shilakanta, extremely. And like sometimes mothers will think, well, you know, I'm trying to chat my job, but my kids are such a distraction. But that's a sacrifice you're doing for Krishna. And this actually the prophet, if you listen to the Japa tape, Prophet's completely absorbed in the holy name, and you hear him say, sit properly. He's like the father, he's watching the children. And, and many years ago in Vancouver, we found uh, an old reel-to-reel tape, and it had another Japa tape on it. And on that one, Prophet's chanting one round very slowly, and then he chants at a normal speed. And in that Japa session, Prophet says, where is Stoka Krishna? And one voice says, oh, Prabhupada, he's in the kitchen cooking. So even though Prabhupada's absorbed in the only, he was very conscious of all his all disciples around him. He wasn't neglecting them. He was very fatherly. It was the same, some of the teachers in um, <coughs> Dale's Gurukul, they were saying, oh, you know, how can we chant Japa? We've got the whole, you know, all the kids to watch. He said, so you chant your Japa? If you do something, you chant your Japa. He didn't consider that, a, you know, an impediment. So um, you learn the art. Like I, I used to have one room in my house that was sewing for the deities, and somebody came over and um, was helping me do it. And I think I had a two-year-old or something at the time, and you know, so I'm sewing for the deities, and they come in, they need an apple, so you get up, you go get them an apple, you cut up, you sit down, you finish, and then they come need something else, you get up, you go get that, you sit down. I said, how do you just keep sewing? I said, well, I do it. I just get up and I do the kid, and I come back and I sew. You know, they just. <laughs> important for fathers to spend time with their kids and also to treat your kids and also the other kids in the community um, don't preach down to them that's very important and just to be their friend uh, I had one, one um, he's probably in his late 40s now but a few years ago this boy who grew up in the movement he came to me and he thanked me he said he said you were the only person that treated me like a human being because I used to just fool around with him, talk to him, and, you know, 
And he just appreciated that I just connected with him. I just came down to the level. So, so it's important as, as fathers, um, not just for their own children, but the other kids in the community to uh, just, you know, just sometimes even just kneel down and talk to them about how they're doing and, and just relate to them in a very personal way. I think that's very important for fathers to spend that quality time with their kids and the other kids in the community. They done a lot of research and they found that actually um, children that grow up with, you know, um, nurturing fathers is so, so beneficial. And, um, you know, it's a package deal. It's not that just the mom does it. It's, you, you know, you need the both. And also, um, girls that grow up with um, nurturing fathers, um, far less like promiscuity, uh, rebellion, things like that. They feel that stability. Um, and so both, you know, both parents are needed. And it's really, really nice um, nowadays that I see that, you know, fathers take a lot of interest in the kids. It's like so nice to see them, you know, kind of sharing their parenting. And I see that the fathers are really happy doing it also, you know, like they're growing as human beings. and. Um, it's just so nice. I mean, it was so weird when Christian Conscious Movement started and if the kid went over to the dad's side, they would just keep dancing in RT and not pick up the kid because if that was lying, they touched the kid. I mean, that was so warped. <laughs> so, you know, um, so, you know, just be normal. It's like, it's so important for the kids to have two nurturing parents, you know, and what to speak if you got two nurturing parents and four nurturing grandparents and a bunch of uncles and aunts, you know, you're doing really good. <laughs> We have a, our daughter lives at Sarnagati. Her husband has three sisters that also live at Sarnagati. You know Kalindi? She's the fourth sister that doesn't live at Sarnagati. His sisters have a whole bunch of kids. So we have usually have a Saturday night dinner with um, our daughter and their kids and our son-in-law's sisters and their kids and his parents and do a head count it's around 23 heads. <laughs> it's night. It's chaos, but it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, another there's a couple more questions on parenting, and then it's about uh, ending marriages. So, um, how to let your kids be independent? <laughs> <laughs> how to let your kids be independent so that when they get married, they don't have problems in their own marriage? So how to nurture the independence? <laughs> or how to not? It, uh, kind of put your problems on so they have struggles in their marriage basically so not passing on issues so by making your marriage as healthy as you can there's research that shows um that's okay if couples have arguments and even sometimes they may argue in front of the children however if the children see that their parents okay they have this argument and they work it out and they love each other that, that's a huge learning experience for them I think your question is also um, a little bit about sometimes we maybe didn't come from the best background of parenting and how can we become good, how can we still be good parents? And um, it's very, very possible. It's just a matter of processing it. You just have to process and say, okay, this didn't really work and, you know, this was not so good for me when this happened. And so, you know, what would be better is this. And so if you process how it wasn't, um, you know, your fault and your parents is probably doing the best that they can um, and find better ways to parent. It's not like you, you don't have the opportunity to also be a good parent. 
It's just a matter of processing what wasn't good, and then you won't repeat it. So that's my answer to that. I, I used to be, uh, I was a Pajari for 20 years, so sometimes I'm obsessed with punctuality. We are happy to stay longer, but I, I don't want to hold anyone if you would like to leave. Yeah. Um, can we say 10 minutes? Sure. Uh, we're fine. We're I work, if anyone has to, to be, yeah, type yeah. schedule and have to leave, please don't hesitate. Um, another one about parenting. Um, do you assume the gender of your child or do you let the child decide? <laughs> um, that's a hot question, isn't it? <laughs> um, to me, it's pretty obvious, <laughs> but um, I don't know. It seems like, you know, you have a certain gender due to your karma, and that's why you have that body. And um, it's interesting, though, you know, there was one devotee, and in Prabhupada's time, he changed his gender. Or she, I don't even know which it was, because I think she went back and forth a few times. He, um, and Prabhupada said, it doesn't really matter, just pick one and stay. <laughs> I'll go with that answer. <laughs> Thank you for expertly navigating that question. There are more about marriage, but I'm going to try and move on because of time. Um, so this is about kind of ending marriage. So there's two themes. One is around divorce, and one is around moving on to Varnapras life. So um, how to become detached from your household duties and move to the next stage once your kids get married or your kids grow up. How would you recommend to do that? This age group is asking that? <laughs> <laughs> it's not <certainly> okay. <laughs> <laughs> we were putting out. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think it kind of naturally happens. Um, um, you know, like, I don't know about you, but like, I'm, I'm done with like a better house and fixing up the house. More of this and more of that. It's like, give me less, please, you know. So I think it kind of naturally comes just with the process of Christian consciousness. And I've also found that personally, when you have some service that you're passionate about, you become more attached to the service. It's not so much, you know, you have other, not that, you know, raising kids wasn't service, but when that service is kind of finished, you find another service, and you're very happy with that. And so the detachment to, I mean, I'm still attached to my kids, but I'm not, you know, I'm quite happy not to face it. <laughs> so, you know. I think it, it actually naturally happens, and um, it's really helpful just to simplify your life. It makes life so much easier, so you want to start downsizing, and then it just it naturally happens. You just focus more on hearing and chanting, and that's really what Valhaprost is, and what all the external details are is, again, going to be different for many people. And I don't think we want to slot that into, you know, you're you know, wearing skinny borders on your saris and your dhotis, and you have, a, you know, a 12 by 14 house and there's only, you know, then I'm on a pro, you know, I mean, come on, it's just whatever's working for you. It's just, you know, how are we going to focus more on Krishna? Because that's what a lot of is, spending more time hearing and chanting, so.
increase your hearing and chanting and sometimes babysit. <laughs> Just in that regard, uh, interesting, some interesting prophet statements about sannyas. And in one place, the prophet said, after the age of 50, every man should take sannyas. In another place, he said, in Kali Yuga, no one should take sannyas. <laughs> Those statements are in the same canto, <laughs> same volume, same chapter, same verse, same paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he says there, um, that one is qualified to take sannyas. So it's, again, it's a very individual thing. And it depends on everyone's individual circumstances. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, similar, Bonifaz. Similar. It's going to be very individual for you. The next topic was about divorce and just the, the concept of is there ever is there ever a right reason for divorce? Um, what is the issue with divorce? Like what's the stigma and um, then yeah, um, there are some bona fide reasons for divorce. One of them is irreconcilable abuse. And Srila Prabhupada actually recommended um, one or two ladies he could see the situation was abusive to, you know, remove themselves from that situation. So um, abuse is a, a valid reason for divorce because it's just too unhealthy and too dangerous for yourself and for your kids. So that's a, you know, an authorized reason for divorce. And then um, sometimes, you know, we are who we are, and relationships are just so difficult that some people just can't stay together. And very often, like if we take steps earlier in our relationships to work through things, they shouldn't build up to that. But still, sometimes people are just so, so different that it's just almost impossible. And what can you do, you know? Um, we just have to make, you know, this decision the best that we can. Um, I don't think that divorce should be, um, it should be like a, really a last resort. You know, try other things first. Be more proactive. Start by making better choices in the first place. But, you know, sometimes we're just in those circumstances. And um, we just take it that, you know, there's something for me to learn here. And usually we learn a lot of things, and that's just in this life how we had to learn. And so um, be grateful to Krishna that we somehow learn what we needed to learn and move on. Because um, there is no impediment to advancing in devotional service if we're sincere. The external circumstances, you know, they, we pick the best ones to help us, but we shouldn't stigmatize people. Um, you know, we just have to deal with our circumstances the best that we can. And uh, research, actually it was done over 40 years, um, showed that couples who considered divorce at some point in the relationship but didn't divorce, um, 10 years later, uh, the research showed that 70% of those couples were actually very happy. They had some you know, different difficult times in their marriage and they worked it out and they became happy, they became stronger. So challenges are normal. Yeah. It's just a matter of learning how to work things out.
Thank you. And one question that I think kind of affects all of them because many times you've mentioned it's a very individual choice and people, couples have to make their own decisions. So this is around how do you deal with other people's often not asked for opinions and views mm -hmm. on your relationship <laughs> and how do you stop it impacting you both internally and between you, between each other? Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if this would be impolite, but Prophet would say sometimes the dogs may bark, but the caravan will pass. Prophet <laughs> <laughs> also say, said that you go, yes, and then do what you want. <laughs> so Prophet was very much a diplomat. Um, I think the biggest struggle is knowing what's right for you and sticking with your own boundaries. That's where it gets confusing because you start to get confused by this other device, uh, uh, the, the advice. So that's really what the real problem is. Because if you know what's good for you, people can say things and you won't be so affected by it. Right? So um, I think you have to find what's good for you and you have to um, also be open to sometimes it is good advice and maybe I'm blocking it. So it's really just a matter of intelligence. Thank you so much. It is 9.15. I uh, apologize for anyone's questions that weren't answered. There's still another 10 questions. <laughs> but um, I think the Guru Master is doing seminars tomorrow and Saturday, Sunday at the Manor. So if you want any more details of those seminars, Pamisha has all the details. You can WhatsApp it to you or you're showing us probably WhatsApp to you already um, for the Sunday program. But can we just have a huge round of applause? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't feel free like you have to stay for okay. because it's been a long time. Thank you. you ask people to fill the feedback form oh, for future events. And Pramisha has set up a feedback form. Um, I'm not advocating feedback, just to clarify. But Pramisha, <laughs> <laughs> uh, feed, feedback form, please feel free to. It's a future event. If people want to attend more things like this, what topics they would be interested in. Just and thank you, Pramisha, for organising this. Oh, yeah.